and if I can get you to uh, state your name and how you like to describe yourself in terms of profession. My name is Dushko Petrovich, and I don't like to describe myself in terms of profession. <laughs> I see this is going to go really well. This episode of Momus the Podcast is supported by the Masters in New Arts Journalism at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Most arts journalism graduate programs in the nation are housed within a journalism department. At the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, arts journalism is taught within the context of a fine art academy. Here you will have access to key players influencing the national and global art worlds. Students learn to write about art and culture in a city brimming with museums, galleries, unusual neighborhoods, music festivals, and vital histories. Visit saic.edu to learn more. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Lauren Wetmore and Sky Gooden. In this episode, we are continuing our season long exploration of the question what makes great art? Speaking to essential voices of our time about their experiences of seeking it. What follows is an interview between Sky and Dushko Petrovich. Born in Ecuador and based in Chicago, Dushko is the chair of the New Arts Journalism Program at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and works in several critical and creative capacities, including as publisher and artist. He is the co-founder of the beloved Paper Monument, and by all indications, the heart of his publishing activity is activist. I love the searching quality of this conversation, especially as Dushko and I land on our mutual desire to foster a space for criticism and change. What makes great art? The metrics by which we know it are being actively altered. What are we looking for when we're looking for great art? What do you find that we're often missing? What are we missing? Weirdly, I have kind of a almost medicinal or um, pharmacological approach to art and culture. Um, I find that um, what you need from it at any given moment usually relates to something that's missing or unresolved or difficult in your own circumstance, not just personally, but sometimes also kind of collectively. At least that's been my experience. Like, if I'm totally honest with myself about what art really hits me and what art really changes me or allows me to change, it's something to do with that. The thing that's often missing for me in that kind of greatness conversation is the span and the ability to for those works to speak to large numbers of people and speak across time and sort of reach reach further than the art world. I think that's a really big limitation, just speaking generally. You know, obviously some works do that, but I think a lot of the works are kind of designed to function in a very particular set of circumstance, which has some benefit, I think, because those are circumstances of, of intense criticality and where people have an awareness of the history and things like that. But personally, 
I feel that those things are oftentimes a, a big limitation. So in terms of like art world, artworks, I often like the ones that that do seem to sort of set their sights somewhat past those parameters. And that's also why I like music, books, films, and things like that just as much as I like artworks, you know, in the art world sense of an artwork. So it sounds like you need a, a work for it to be quote unquote great, to be great to more than you. It, it needs to, you need to be able to see its effect on a larger community of people. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I obviously would regularly say that such and such a thing is great or such and such an artist is great. But even, I guess, when I would say it, I would be thinking um, somewhat in terms of greatness as a um, a size category, right? Like a mm. ca- capacity or um, span, you know, that really seems important to me. Uh, if, I, if I were to say something is great, you know, I could say something was perfect or incredible, if if it had a more limited focus, but I wouldn't necessarily say it was great. Um, I guess I'm wondering if there's an example you have of an artwork that, or an exhibition, performance, et cetera, that, uh, that you now can feel maybe a bit uh, not diminished by, but maybe a bit embarrassed by or something. Is there an example that you can give of something that just hasn't aged well in your experience? I mean, I think for me, for me personally, um, I really learned a lot from Picasso, which would be, you know, an obvious Mm. candidate for for talking about greatness. And, you know, so as as a young painter, I really appreciated, again, the span and the reach and the engagement with with history and visual observation, the political aspect of the work and the the span of time, the span of materials, media, all that. And, you know, I had a huge number of Picasso books and, and, and you know, collected all kinds of images in the pre-digital times uh, when collecting images was harder. And I wouldn't necessarily, you know, repudiate any of that. But I think in my own development, there's been a kind of undertow with a lot of that work. And, you know, now I look at it, uh, you know, more critically, I think, from a Mm. kind of post-colonial standpoint. At a certain point, I was trying to learn modernism and understand what it was and how I could fit into it. And then at a certain other point, that wasn't really a central question for me. So Mm. in a a way, like there's a certain amount of Picasso-esque or whatever architecture in my thinking and in the way I approach things. I think cubism was hugely important and I, I learned a lot from it, not just in terms of how a painting works or something like that, but just intellectually in terms of how a mind works or how art history works. And now I wouldn't necessarily like rush out to see a Picasso retrospective or anything. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't feel urgent. And a lot of it I look at and I think, oh man, you know, why did I think that was so cool? In talking to you, I have the advantage of having a couple other conversations behind us now. And and one of them was with Osei Bonsu, who was talking about the kind of ahistorical quality of meeting 
work when you're young and that it could be a contemporary artist or, uh, you know, one from, from previous generations or centuries, it wouldn't really matter. The hair kind of gets blown back off your neck regardless. And there isn't such an attention paid to, is this now or is this then? And I think the lucky thing about being introduced to somebody like Picasso is that it's almost always one of the first. So you're not coming to it with a ton of critical appreciation for, for its problematics or how, you know, how it's being positioned within a larger canon. It's usually one of those first introductions. And so you can be quite green to it. There's a kind of joyousness that can be erupted from that maybe more quickly than if you came to it later in your career. It's funny, now that you say that, I have a very distinct uh, visual image that comes into my head that I think fits with this kind of narrative. When I was six, I moved from Quito, Ecuador to Toledo, Ohio, and my mother enrolled me in like Saturday morning classes at the Toledo Museum of Art, which is an extraordinary museum. But as like a seven-year-old, it was a fairly overwhelming collection of paintings that looked a lot alike. So a Titian and a Rembrandt and an El Greco and a Rubens, sort of portraits of a guy in robes or something. Um, I found them very difficult to distinguish. And I had to find my way back from the area. It was like a kind of courtyard where we had the class and the place where my mom picked me up. And so the artworks at that point functioned really in a simple way as um, landmarks, like literal signposts for me to get out of this maze. And here's the punchline is that the Chuck Close, to speak of someone who now I feel Mm. very differently about, uh, the Chuck Close was like a neon sign. I mean, it was just like so radiant Mm. and, and different. So not only was it you know, a way to know that I was like going in the right direction to to get picked up. But, you know, I really like appreciated it like mm-hmm. for being different and for for looking different. And of course, I didn't have a developed sense of of what that meant historically. But I think I registered the kind of visual language that it was using and how different it was from previous visual languages mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a basic way. And so for a long time, that was my favorite art, you know, and, and it it stayed that way for a number of years just because it was such a majestic, incredible incredible painting um, that was done in such a different way from everything that was surrounding it. And, um, you know, of course, with the benefit of hindsight and thinking about some different things, Chuck Close's work wasn't like that important to me. And then now, given all the, you know, Me Too stuff around him, you know, I think he's been pushed even further back. But um, that would be a definite example of, I guess, both things, actually hitting it without a historical predisposition. But at the same time, I was kind of learning some kind of history of painting mm-hmm. just walking through the museum. And that was also teaching me a big, you know, a big kind of rupture or leap that happened uh, in the history of painting. And you know, it really announced itself in that way. Mm-hmm. And what is your experience of being in the studio or, uh, I mean, at, at the computer as well? I mean, you're a writer and an artist. I, I wonder if you can speak to your experience of creating. Do you allow the the uh, possibility of producing something great to, to loom over the experience of creating? Or, you know, like, how do you approach um, the seeking it out and the making it in your own practice? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm I'm middle aged now, and I, you know, I do work somewhat as a critic and an editor. So, 
I think I'm pretty circumspect and fair. Uh, that's definitely been uh, an area that, you know, has developed as I got older, you know? I mean, I think when you're younger and you're thinking about greatness, it's really kind of a desperate <laughs> kind of, you know, you're sort of swiping at it or something. You're just hoping that you have enough energy and and wit and feeling, you know, to to climb the mountain. That's probably why it's more dramatic. Nowadays, I have a sense, I think, of what my capacities are, and I'm obviously trying to push them when I can. But anything I think about in terms of greatness now is more related to that kind of architecture, like thinking of longer term art projects and really thinking about what do they really touch and and are they about things that are genuinely important not just to myself but to other people and do I have a method for articulating that importance you know and so it's a much slower burn about whether I think something I do is great I mean I obviously have to think it's good enough to put it into the world but I, I do also try to accomplish some kind of greatness, like some, to speak editorially for a minute, mm -hmm. um, you know, Paper Monument started with some smaller books. And then later on, we were able to do social medium artist writings 2000 to 2015. And I would be lying if, if I didn't say that one of the great pleasures in doing that was my sense that we were really doing something great that was really going to collect what we thought were the most important writings and put them in one place. And, you know, then obviously you just have to see how it how it all pans out. But that was definitely part of our thinking. I mean, we didn't want to make an incidental or minor book. We wanted to make a great one. And I mean, it's an anthology. So in a way that's simpler, you know, because you can kind of just collect things. Um, that was definitely a part of it. Um, you know, now I'm working on The Daily Gentrifier and I did New York and Los Angeles. And I had a lingering feeling that actually I needed to do more, like that it wasn't really enough to just kind of punch those two cities and take a bow or something. So I've been working for the last few years on a system to make works about the art communities in smaller cities around the U.S. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to judge my own work great, not great, but it's definitely a factor for me now to think, okay, how can I use the skills and resources that I have to try to make something that will really stand up over time and will communicate to a lot of people and talk about something that's important, you know? Mm -hmm. So again, it's, it's not the, it doesn't have any of the drama of youth uh, for me, but it's definitely a, um, a thing that, that, figures into how I'm making things. If you can um, talk a bit about the most recent book that Paper Monument put out, As Radical, As Mother, As Salad, As Shelter, What Should Art Institutions Do Now? And if the conversations you've had in making that book about art institutions and their agency in an urgent political moment, if they have shifted your consideration of what we can expect or where we should be looking and what we might be looking for when it comes to powerful experiences with art. In the chronology of Paper Monument, um, that book is much slimmer than the the one I just talked about, Social Medium, mm -hmm. and it can't, you know, Social Medium kind of addresses 
15 years. And As Radical as Mother really was born out of trying to address the 2016 election and the aftermath. And our method with Paper Monument is really to try to find a um, sort of single point of focus that, that brings a lot of shared questions into view. And we thought about it for a while. And it was, I think, mainly our associate editor, Prem Krishnamurthy, the great designer and curator who... Um, wanted to develop a set of questions for for curators. And Roger White, who's my other collaborator on Paper Monument, Roger and I were talking a lot about where we noticed conversation shifting, and that's often like our kind of editorial radar. And what we noticed was that a lot of the artists that we knew and critics had, had kind of always talked very politically, even if it wasn't clear in the work, the conversations were often like that. But what we started to see after the elections was people like above us in rank, you know, like directors of things and board members of things and kind of, you know, that level of administrators in the art world started to take a more political point position because I think they felt threatened by the election of, of Trump and they felt a responsibility to firm up their institutional position, right? So there were a lot of emails sent out that we noticed. And that's what kind of started us off. And so this book had us talking to those types of people. But of course, we we wanted to talk to not just the biggest directors, but directors also of sort of smaller ragtag nonprofits and that kind of thing. So in terms of the conversation about what we can expect from art, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess I'll start with what we can expect from editing, because in a way, you know, we we felt like we needed in a way to act fast and to mm -hmm. to there's a kind of an, there's an emergency, you know, there's um, the emergency isn't really bearing down on middle class artists right now, but it's nonetheless an emergency and, and it's more severe for other people. So we did feel like we needed to respond, you know, in our own way to the circumstance. And so that does change your calculus in terms of what you're trying to do. And the, so, the social media book had a far greater, you know, kind of in quotes, purview in terms of like what we were trying to establish for the historical record. But As Radical as Mother was really more kind of tactically intense, you know, like, mm -hmm. what can we do very quickly to consolidate this conversation? Maybe not for all time, but maybe for the people who right now are feeling very desperate and confused and could benefit from this kind of publication. And, you know, obviously a publication is not food for the hungry or, you know, warmth for the homeless, but insofar as a publication can be a kind of emergency resource, that's how we were thinking of this. And it was like, what can we do for that community to give them a, a publication that asks a lot of people these questions and so they can have the benefit of everyone's wisdom taken together. And so that's all kind of from the editorial point of view. The The content of that wisdom, you know, is more complex, I think. One of the things that resonated with me, but this is probably because that's the direction I was already heading in, was that there's a lot to be said for forming new and very different kinds of institutions that don't depend on the kind of economic and power structures that endorse, you know, the catastrophe that we're in now, you know, and that Pablo Helguera talked about that uh, 
you know, despite the fact that Pablo works at MoMA, his personal point of view was more that, and as he does in his own work, right, he forms kind of institutions and organizations that just exist on different terms mm-hmm. and don't have millionaire board members and that kind of thing. Um, so I, that was what really resonated for me. Um, you know, and I don't know. I mean, will that work be great? I, you know, that's where you get into the kind of technical, tactical nitty gritty of, you know, the timing of something can be great. And the um, overall impact of something seemingly minor or slight can be great if it mobilizes other people and affects a bigger change, you know. So that's very hard to predict, obviously, from, you know, the moment. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me, I mean, with your attention being placed right now, and rightly so on uh, what art institutions can do and the responsibility they should be bearing, and also with your comment on sort of um, a faded youth in terms of the the buoyancy maybe or the the reach that you're bringing to your own practice, that maybe there is a, a stress being placed on what's missing when we're walking into an exhibition or an event in terms of what is not being done that should be being done. Does that sound accurate to you? Totally. And, and you know, ed- editorial against, I mean, bo- both editorial and artistically, but, um, you know, when you're an editor, you really have to look at the field as a whole and make choices based on what's existing and what's not existing or what's mm-hmm. existing in a limited way and then make some kind of commitment there. And I, I, I think also good artists do this, too, where you kind of evaluate the field and make a move that you feel will, like, push things in whatever direction you're trying to push them. So uh, definitely that radar for what's missing is really important. And I mean, it should be said also that oftentimes what's missing isn't necessarily something you yourself can produce. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nowadays, there can be no great straight white male artists, or maybe that, not that there can't be, but it's somewhat less likely to kind of invert Linda Nochlin's, you know, great uh, essay and observation. Uh, I think with contemporary artists, there are so many great women artists and great artists of color, precisely because they're able to take up really big, impactful questions in a way that comes less easily to uh, people who have you know, benefited from all these bad structures we have. Adrian Piper, someone who I would definitely consider a great artist, wrote a great essay, The Triple Negation of Colored Women Artists, where she makes exactly this kind of argument, which is that one's experience of the world through what she calls, you know, triple negation, any any kind of category of, of negation teaches you so much about how the world is organized and how painful that is. So women artists of color are, in that sense, you know, total experts, right, the hard way in all these really important questions that we share. And Fred Wilson in Mining the Museum also made a similar kind of observation, which was that once he did that project where he took the the contents of the historical museum in Baltimore, Maryland, and and displayed all the things that were normally hidden away, things that had to do with slavery and uh, the genocide of Native Americans, um, once he brought all those materials out, 
he said that interestingly the um, the employees, the the custodial staff, the the guards at the museum were suddenly experts in that material, mm. and the curators who normally held such high positions of power were not at all experts in that material. That was material that they had taught themselves to ignore, mm-hmm. you know, as as like high-ranking, um, uh, educated white people. So I don't know. I think that question of of greatness is is really politically inflected, you know, and the, the Nochlin essay obviously is true historically. But I also think that now if you're looking for works that confront big shared social questions. Um, oftentimes it is um, artists from marginalized groups who have the expertise and the wherewithal and the motivation to address those things in their work, which I think, you know, oftentimes uh, makes that work great. I just know that I don't always have the right answers. And I also know that um, I'm oftentimes not the right person to be saying something. So um, I've found that that kind of editorial or kind of project leader position to be a useful one to uh, put that into practice. Yeah, yeah, we can agree on that. Moments the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and assistant production from Mitra Shiram. If you would like to inquire about advertising opportunities or other forms of support, please reach out to me, Sky Gooden, via momus.ca. We would like to thank Dushko Petrovich for his thoughtful contribution to this episode. This has been episode 10 of Momus the Podcast.